0: Good morning, and I greet you in Jesus' name. I'm happy to be here with you this morning, and I feel like we have praised the Lord thus far, and I hope we can continue to do that this morning. If you would, turn with me to Luke 19 for a starting verse. This is Palm Sunday, as you probably know. And while I'm not going to unnecessarily speak on that particular subject this morning, I would like to uh, just start with a verse here in, in Luke 19. And um, verses 41 and 42 read like this. And, he was, and when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, if thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from your eyes. I guess that uh, that verse struck me as I read over the different accounts of uh, the events surrounding the triumphal entry into Jerusalem here that is recorded in all the Gospels, actually. Jesus, I'm sure, had very conflicting feelings as he... Um, as he entered uh, the city that day. And I'm, I'm struck with how he said, you don't understand the things that would actually bring you peace. And hours later, he goes down to the temple and it says that um, he, he kind of uh, cleaned the temple out. Which tells us, we, we had a lot of religion happening. We had a lot of activity going on in the temple. And they were looking for peace in all the wrong places and Jesus you don't understand what actually brings you peace you don't, you don't get that if you, if you flip back a few chapters in Acts 7 you have um, Stephen's sermon to the people of his day and he had uh, he had an analysis too in verse 51 it's interesting that we don't have very many sermons huh. If you if you want to call them that, uh, recorded in the Bible, but we do have Stephen's. Um, we have his um, his encounter here with the uh, with the men of his day. We do have that uh, pretty well documented what he said, and it's interesting that it was a, it basically it was a recounting of, of Israel's history is what it was. And he he cuts right to the chase in fifty one, and he minces no words when he says, "Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears." Okay, these people were circumcised uh, where they thought they should be circumcised, but he said, "In your hearts and in your ears, you are not circumcised." He says, "You do always resist the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, as your fathers did, so do you." And again, that struck me as I read that that these people thought they had it together. They did. And he said, you're no different than your fathers. He said, you're resisting the Holy Spirit just like your fathers did. And he said, you're you're missing it. And they did not like that message. And you know what happened to Stephen because of that that analysis that he was willing to uh, put forth to them that day. I think they were convicted, but they decided to get rid of the spokesman rather than to change course. And so um, as I mentioned I'm, I'm not necessarily going to to uh, talk about the events of Palm Sunday necessarily but I would like to continue with my with my uh, series that I started the last time and uh, I hope you you'll find this um, uh, at least... Um, um, you can find this at least a learning experience as we move along here. So uh, for those of you that weren't here the last time I spoke, I entitled um, the talk, What Are Conservative Mennonites Conserving? And um, a number of you, after after church that Sunday, mentioned how that... Um, y- that uh, you um, you really didn't understand, or you thought I maybe went a little too fast over some of those things the last time, and so I'm going to um, just slow down just a little bit here this morning. I'm going to take just a bit of time to try to help us to understand what happened in the first part of the 20th century that 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 formed who kind of we are and how we think about things and. Um, and why we do some of the things we do. And again, I want to, to stress that this little series that I'm, I'm bringing you is in no way um, uh, a, a, trying to, to, to elevate us as, as, as though we have it all together, because that's not the case. We have many things to learn, but I don't want us to be like the people here in Acts that just do as our fathers do, and we're uncircumcised in, in our hearts and in our minds, and we, and we really don't have it together. That, that's my burden, that we understand what what the Bible says and what we practice and how that either fits together or maybe we have some things to learn. That, that's, that should be our goal. That should always be our goal, that we go back and, and the Bible is center and forefront to what we practice. And I, I think it is, but I think sometimes we, we do well to see why we practice some things the way we do. So I'm going to just get starting, started here. And I'm going to take you on a little journey, and, um, and hopefully this will be helpful to you in, in understanding some things. So uh, if you will remember that chart I had up here the last time, there was a, there was a line that went something like this. And, um, and then there was uh, something that went somewhat like this. And then there was a line that went up like that. And this was kind of the, um, the, the old order movement. This was the GC movement, and this was the MC movement. And what the, what the, um, the, the uh, maker of that chart was trying to show is that you know, there was some, some divergence in here, and there was a time where the Mennonite church that we come from Uh, was kind of going in one direction, and then they kind of began to slide in another direction. And then you remember all these little little lines over here, and I told you that this is somewhat what has become the conservative Mennonite churches that we identify with today. What I would like to just briefly and quickly tell you is why we had the old order movement there that you see. Um, It basically was somewhat of an identity thing. In the, in the old country, we had no problem identifying who we were. We were persecuted people. And we were persecuted people because we had chosen to, um, to buck the system of the day, if you will. And we had chosen to be biblicists. That, that is what people chose to do that identified with the Anabaptists. And because that didn't fit the system of the day, they were persecuted. As the Anabaptists moved into America, um, that was a busy time. Uh, it was no small no small feat to ride a boat over the Atlantic and set up housekeeping in a frontier wilderness and uh, Because of the busyness of life and the um, the change in, in many things, um, the the Mennonites as we became became known to to be somewhat lost. Um, uh the identity of being persecuted well they did they weren't really persecuted here and so they they decided that since we're not persecuted people I I'm, I'm really condensing this um, we would just be humble people we be, we would be known for our humility and if you read the literature through the 1800s you will you will find again and again the uh the the it seemed like every writer had something to say about the pride of the day Pride was the enemy, and it was kind of the catch-all uh, thing that everybody was on the lookout for. And, and it, the, the thing that was interesting is the—it's uh, very hard to set objective criteria for a subjective experience. In other words, how do you how do you um, how do you describe humility? How do you know when humility uh, is no longer present? And sometimes that became a bit a bit difficult. Anyway, uh, in the late 1700s um, was a time period known as the Great Awakening, and you probably remember that um, the Wesleys and George Whitfield and those types of people had there was a revival movement that went through the uh, the churches of those days, and it didn 't pass the Mennonite people by and the Mennonite people were influenced by that, some thought it was a good thing, some didn 't and um, Part of the reason some people thought it was not a good thing was because of some of the stuff that took place over those times. And there was indeed some people that um, embraced the the revival movement of that time and quickly, very quickly, lost the um, uh, biblical obedience to the word of God. Let's just put it that way. It, It didn't take long. And so... Quickly, it uh, it became looked at with um, um, suspicion, and was not well received by by many by many Mennonite people. This this revival type of um, of thing that that kind of went through the country in the late seventeen hundreds. And so, uh, as I mentioned, the, the the paradigm began to somewhat uh, galvanize in, in that in that time period in the in the eighteen hundreds that we're going to we're going to be humble. Humble people, and um, and that's fine. Humility is a great thing, but uh, that humility, somewhat morphed into uh, pride, was any time there was any talk of any change of any sort. Okay, so it kind of morphed into we will not change anything, and that will be proof positive that we are we are humble. And I know that's again very very condensed, but that was somewhat somewhat the way. Uh, it was looked at. So, one historian uh, put it this way, and I'm just going to read this uh, verbatim because I think I think he um, he puts it somewhat well. He says, having been preoccupied with their farms, the Mennonites' focus became narrow. They remained an unlearned people and cannot effectively compete with the charismatic evangelists that roamed the countryside. They were content with their prosperous farms in some form of traditional faith. However, their spiritual candle was burning low. Mennonites began to interpret discipleship more and more in terms of adhering to their own group's discipline and practice and less and less in the language of spreading God's rule to the world. And as frontier life disappeared the vanities of life quickly surfaced. And um, again, that anytime you condense something, you're losing some stuff. But that probably is more or less a, an accurate picture of, of the way things kind of began to shake out in the 1800s. And if you remember with me, there was various times through the 1800s where somebody got tired of the t- status quo and they left. And it was almost always some sort of a revival movement, if you will. So in the late 1800s, the larger Mennonite church began to be influenced by a man, and you'll remember the name there uh, that, I, that was on the chart the last time, by the, by the name of John Funk. John Funk was a, um, was a man that, um, that moved to Chicago as a young man to enter the lumber business in the 1850s. And while he was there in 1858, he became converted in a Presbyterian revival meeting, and it ended up attending Moody Bible Institute while he was in Chicago. And much of the influence he had at Moody, um, he took back to the Mennonite Church and began to integrate these things into the Mennonite Church. And these were things such as, Sunday school evangelistic meetings uh, religious publications so on and so on well this this immediately uh, as as you can understand and and uh, I'm sure it isn't hard to understand this this indeed brought some conflict uh, some thought it was a good thing some didn't think it was such a good thing that is why you have the the um the uh, big, the old order movement, as we call it, there on, on that uh, on the blackboard behind me. Uh, the people that were not for these things could not help but remember some of the things that took place over the Great Awakening of the late 1700s, and the way those things went weren't, weren't good. Let's just let's just be honest. They were not that positive, and they they couldn't forget that. And they were more than happy to continue to be humble people and just be known as that. And so um, they chafed under this idea of any type of change that uh, Funk and his friends were trying to to, uh, bring to the Mennonite church during that time. And to quote one of the old order leaders, he said, I'm satisfied with the old ground and council." That's just the way he put it. And he felt like by accepting new things, it would, uh, it would compromise um, what the Church of God actually was supposed to represent. And, and to be fair to these people, um, it's always wise to try to be fair. Um, one can understand some of the, some of the concern. We, don't, we have Sunday school and we thoroughly enjoy it. But you have to remember that things always weren't like they are today. Uh, there was there in the, at the beginning of the Sunday School movement, there was um, there was much ecumenicalism. Uh, a lot of Sunday schools were union Sunday schools, where um, the um, it would be held on a Sunday afternoon, and it would be all the churches in one area that would have Sunday school together. And so it was a place where perhaps um, some principles that. Um, shouldn't have been uh, taught the way they were, were. Were actually taught, and it it so there was that problem. And um, you know, then there was just the the um, uh, the resistance to any kind of change. That's always a problem too. Um, evangelistic meetings they that that was a problem because it was viewed as somewhat of a prideful event. Um, too much shouting and boisterous preaching did not sit well with many of the folks in those days. And so you, you you have these these many things, and and we understand human nature enough to realize that that kind of thing does end up uh, causing a bit of of conflict sometimes. And so the 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 people that did not care for that kind of change just ended up starting what we know as of, of as the old order movement. And um, many of you are familiar with that, and I won't enlarge on that, but. I will say this, if you want to know somewhat what the Mennonite Church was in the 1800s, you can pretty much look at the Old Order of People, and, that, and that's somewhat what it was. Oh, that's, that's, they, they have maintained that rather well. So as we uh, come into the late 1800s and, and early 1900s, and, and we move along here, and, and um, we have John Funk uh, becoming a, a man that was very um, influential in, in his day, very progressive, he was a, a real instigator of Sunday schools and so on. And he also had a, a publishing house that he published a paper called The Herald of Truth. which And, and through that publishing work, he, um, he really promoted these, these things that he had come to believe in and he thought was a good thing. One of Funk's greatest contributions was his um, combination of conservatism and progress. One observer said this, He stood firmly against the Methodistic type of more emotional piety and equally vigorously resisted the reactionary types. He guided the church in gradual change down the middle of the road and is more responsible than any other one man for the general character of the Mennonite Church in the 20th century, in its middle-of-the-road position between tradition on one hand and undirected progress on the other. So as, as uh, Funk's influence waned in the first decade of the 20th century, we have a man by the name of Daniel Kaufman, who I mentioned the last time, that became pretty much the, the man at the steering wheel of the Mennonite Church for the next 44 years basically and uh, he was a man that was converted at a Mennonite revival meeting as a, as a man in his 20s in 1890 two years later he became a minister four years after that a bishop and um, and he wielded much much influence through the um, through the uh, general Conference that was was started in the late 1800s he also was the editor of what would become the the paper, the Gospel Herald, which was an extension of Funk's paper, the Herald of Truth. And through that, he he had much influence. He was a much used preacher, a much used writer, and um, and he really promoted uh, the things that Funk kind of set in 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 place in the in the late eighteen hundreds. So now I want to uh, just briefly go over some of the some of the significant things that happened that shaped our church paradigm in the uh, in the 20th century. Some sort of significant markers that were different, I should say, than than what, maybe what they were in the 1800s. So number one, I think there was a a new or perhaps renewed emphasis on salvation and spiritual discipling. And and, and understand what I'm saying here. Again, if you go back to the early days of Anabaptism, when one made the decision that he was going to identify as an Anabaptist, that was a momentous decision. You were putting life, limb, property, everything you owned on the altar. And you jolly well knew. That there was a very good chance that you would, you would have your head cut off or you would burn at the stake or you would be twisted and tormented in some heinous way because of your faith. So if I go to Ryan and I hear, and I'm his friend and I hear he has joined the Anabaptist, I say that man has had a life-changing experience somewhere that would make him want to do that. You just didn't, you just didn't do that without thinking. You thought through that process. And so, if I heard that he's an Anabaptist, automatically my mind would say, This man is a radical Christian. That's what he is. Well, now you move into a, to an era where there's no persecution. Does the fact that you're a Mennonite now prove to me that you've had a, a, a life changing experience and you are on Jesus' side now? Is that proof positive? It, it's not. And I see some of you shaking your hands. It is not. But what happened in the 1800s, that paradigm continued. And the thought was, if I join the church, then I'm saved. I mean, I'm putting that very simplistically, very simplistically. But that's somewhat the way it was viewed. So what, does it, what do you end up with? You end up with, potentially, people that aren't saved that think they are. That's what you end up with. Okay. And that's and that and that is why we had people in the in the late 1800s responding to things like um the the um the revival meetings and so on that were happening in the neighborhood because it, it were, there was something there that they were missing and it resonated with them. And so the Mennonites adopted that method, if you will. I personally think it was it was a net positive for the Mennonite church but there is also a a downside that comes with that as well. If too much emphasis is now put on just an emotional conversion experience, what happens over here? We might leave discipleship out. We might. That that is a that is a real possibility, unfortunately. But that's, but that's the trajectory that the church took in, in those days. And, and I, and I want to emphasize, I do think it was a net positive. The net positive was that people were, um, were choosing Christ at a younger age. They were not waiting till they were in their mid twenties. And when, when, um, when perhaps their, their thought processes in the world had had too much of an influence, they were, Sunday schools were were a great help for this. Children were taught better than what they had perhaps been in an earlier time, and so they had an understanding that they didn't before. And so when they were exp- exposed to good, solid Bible preaching at these revival meetings, it resonated. The whole thing began to click, and it was a good thing. I think it was a net positive. Another thing that happened during this time was... Um, Church service and activity became much more a part of our of our um, paradigm. Again, this was quite a departure from from earlier days. Frontier life had not permitted people to meet every Sunday morning for church. It just was not feasible. It was not possible. So perhaps over here in this part of the woods you'd have church. Today and this Sunday, this part of the woods. The following Sunday, and maybe this part of the woods. The third Sunday. So you maybe got church every two to four Sundays that were where the saints all assembled and had what we would call a church service. Um, that's not conducive. That's not real conducive for um, for building spiritual life. It, it was it was the it was the it was a fact of life in those days. But here again, as time progressed. And we now maybe could have church every Sunday in our neck of the woods because change isn't maybe what we should do. We'll just keep on having church every other Sunday because change could be a marker of pride, see? See, that's, that's kind of how that worked. And even as late as my childhood, um, I, I know churches that would only have church every other Sunday, and it was a throwback to those days 200 years later. It's just a fact of life. People were very resistant to meeting on Sunday evenings for a church service. Um, One person uh, in a book I read quoted a letter that somebody had written to another one of his friends, and he said, We are indeed in perilous times. There is no good that comes from night preaching. That's what they said. And and really, what was it? It was just a departure from, from what was done before. And when one thinks through that, you see the silliness of it. But in those days, this, this was, this was, this was momentous stuff. I will say this. The increased church services and activity was a net positive. There was many useful things that came from that. I will say this. I will ask you this question. Is it ever a bad thing to be repeatedly exposed to the Word of God. Is that ever a bad thing? Is it ever a bad thing for capable teachers to teach the Word of God? Can that ever be bad? Um, The Hebrew writer says, assemble. Don't don't forsake the assembling of yourselves. And if you think the perilous times are here, maybe you should step up a night or two. That's what he says. All right. There was an increase in interest in missions at home and abroad. I see this as a very positive thing during this era. And again, to, to walk you through quickly, at the inception of the Mennonite Church, i.e. Anabaptists, they were extremely evangelistic, extremely. Um, it is unbelievable the enthusiasm they had for, for sharing the gospel, knowing what they knew, I mean, there was people that were sent out two by two, and they knew they probably would not come back. They knew that if they shared the gospel in the way they intended to, very good chance they would not come back. And there are people that um, look at that and say, perhaps that was not the wisest thing. And I'm quite willing to not pass judgment on that one way or the other, but that was the reality. However, persecution did wear out the saints of God. And um, eventually, a few, about 100 years later, the church was willing to capitulate on their focus of evangelism. and, And just for the chance to catch their breath and not be hunted down like varmin, they said they were given the opportunity here and there in Germany and in Russia, you can come to our land, but here's the stipulation, you cannot evangelize. And they were willing to do that just to get away from the sword. And again, I am not ready to pass judgment on those people because I did not live in their times. It does not seem terribly biblical to me. In fact, I should rephrase that. It's not biblical, but who am I to say what I would do under equal circumstances? I feel for those people. So as as, um, as the Anabaptist Mennonites came to America... Um, they had already somewhat relinquished their evangelistic zeal and they began to somewhat form cultural enclaves and uh, and just be content to live on the frontier in their in their cultural enclaves during this time the early 1900s with the renewed emphasis on personal salvation and an exposure to the needs of the world and actually a, an opportunity to do something about that, there was a real renewed zeal to be evangelistic, to spread the good news. And it was many times spurred on by energized, uh, quickened youth of that day. It did bring two problems, and I'll quickly mention them. Because of the lack of technology and airplanes and that sort of thing, if you committed to go to the foreign mission field you are quite isolated from um, from brothers and sisters of like precious faith if I want to if you want to put it that way and so many times on the foreign fields there was a real um, uh, ecumenicalism expressed itself very very handily so if you're over here in Africa and you're Mennonites and you have a mission here and down the road there's say, a Lutheran mission, and over here there's this mission, hey, you're, you're all kind of isolated, so it, it feels good for fellowship to get together. And I understand that. But when you, when you begin to compromise biblical principle just for fellowship, then there's a problem. And that's what ended up happening on the foreign field. It, it, it caused a lot of strain and stress. Locally, um, we had young people with a lot of energy and vision that wanted to go into to the the royal outlying areas and into cities and share the good news. Again, wonderful, wonderful zeal and and who can who can um, point a finger at that? However. Um, it did bring its challenges as well. Um, older, cautious people looked at it with suspicion, probably didn't put their support behind it the way they should have, and it did bring some generational tension. Um, however, I want to leave that on a positive note. That was good. I think that renewed focus on missions was a net good thing, and I, and I see no reason why we should, we should uh, point fingers at that at all. Another thing that happened during that time was the establishment of institutions of higher learning, places such as Heston College, Goshen College, EMC, Lancaster Mennonite School, and so on and so on. Th- these these institutions were basically uh, started as an option to Moody Bible Institute. Okay, so we're going to have our own institution, and we're going to prepare our own youth for things like missionaries, teachers, church leaders and so on and so on. Now, the story on these colleges are long and nuanced, and so I'm just gonna condense it into a very, very short summary. For whatever reason, these colleges became hotbeds for liberal practices, liberal thinking. Um, And we could talk long and at length uh, of why that was, and I'm not gonna necessarily delve into the why, I'm just telling you the what. It, It did become that way. And as a matter of fact, in 1923, the General Conference Board of Education shut down Goshen College for one year just to regroup and try to put it on a more, to use the word, conservative trajectory. And um, teachers and staff during that time, during that year, many of them went over to, I think it was Bluffton College, which was a General Conference college, and said, well, we'll go over here and teach. And so that gave an opportunity for the Mennonite Church um, that we're talking about to, to try to get a, a, a more conservative path in, into that school. However, um, long and short of it, it didn't work. Um, Eastern Mennonite College was started for the sole reason to give a conservative alternative to Goshen, and it didn't take very long till that was on the same track as well. And it just seemed like they could not. It seemed like these these institutions just did not end up being what they were founded to be as as institutions to to um, to teach the word of God and to to make people stable in their faith. It it just simply did not turn out that way. And for something that the goals were so noble. It is too bad that it ended up being one of the biggest detriments to the church, but it, it is the truth. And lastly, the other thing that the church was grappling with during that era was the concern of what we know of as modernism. Okay, now that's a subject all in and of itself. But modernism and modern American culture was becoming a big, big hurdle a big problem for the church during those times in a nutshell modernism is generally defined as a departure from long held traditional views on any fundamental subject okay so we're going to focus on church because we're talking about church but it can be it's much broader than that so there was during during the early 1900s there was a a departure in the broader church from things that had been held for, well, since Christ was here. And people began to question the authority of scriptures, the, the, um, the authenticity of things like the virgin birth and creation and all this stuff. Churches began to say, well, maybe not. Maybe it wasn't that way. And, and this rightly alarmed people that said, yeah, it is that way. If the Bible says it, that's the way it is. And so you had this movement that came in the early 1900s called Fundamentalism, which was a reaction to modernism it was a it was an effort by the by the churches of its day to shore up the the authenticity and and reality of God in the bible and and traditional religion I guess you would say Mennonites formed what I would call their own brand of fundamentalism and they they also wanted to make sure that they weren't Deceived or led astray by some of these modernistic um, thought processes. And probably one of the, one of the most interesting things of that time period was in 1921 there was a document written by the Mennonite Church called the Christian Fundamentals. And it's actually, it's actually what we adhere to today, the Christian Fundamentals. And the first article in the Christian Fundamentals is on the Word of God. And how we believe the Word of God is true, and its authority, and its authenticity, and it's just this short sentence on the Word of God is where it's at. And that was a departure from the Dortrich Confession of Faith, which was our previous confession, which simply started out on an article on God. Everyone just assumed that the Word of God was believed. We just start with God. In the nineteen twenty-one we go back and we and we say, well, first of all, let's let's I'm here to tell you that the word of God is where it's at. That that's what we're going by. One of the ways that Mennonites attempted to shield themselves from the influences of society slash modernism was to emphasize a more uniform and detailed prescriptive order of life. And that was that was different. That was not something that we had done before. Because when you're kind of isolated, and you're not really exposed to the world that much, and modernism isn't really an issue, you don't have that problem. So they were trying to address a problem that was there in their faces. Um, Perhaps this this emphasis on uniform and detail was a bit overdone sometimes. I'm not here to judge that completely, but perhaps it was. Um, with the church structured as conferences in that day and so on, there was a tendency, and this is understandable, I understand it, but there was this tendency for leaders to try to stymie the worldly pressures of the day by, let's do everything the same. Let's, let's be precise. Let's, let's call this worldly and this isn't. And sometimes what they were addressing was only a symptom of a much deeper problem, but they were addressing perhaps the symptom. Well, I can tell you this. There was a lot, a lot written about modernism during those days. Um, John Hirsch, a writer in those days, wrote two books called Modern Religious Liberalism and the Church and Modernism. And he dedicates page after page to how modernism, in his, in his view, was making inroads into the, into the church. And J.C. Wanger um, wrote the, the book Separated Unto God. And that's a very good read and I would encourage you to read that if you if you get a chance. Alright. So what happens in the in the um, in the middle part of the last century that as I as I mentioned to you the last time I had this gentleman that, that asked me, why did the Mennonite Church lose it in in the in the fifties and sixties? Why did they why did they go the direction they did? And I'm just going to quickly give you some ideas why that might have been. Now, anytime you begin to speculate on something like this, it becomes very subjective, and I understand that. But I'm going to give you some thoughts for you to think about why it might have happened. Number one, there was there was uh, the death of three very influential men in a, in, within a very very short period of time in the late in the late 30s through the mid 40s. Number one, the first one of them was George Brunk in 1938, the founder of Sword and Trumpet, and a a very um, adamant proponent of the conservative Mennonite church. He died. His voice was not there anymore. Um, John Hirsch, who I just talked about, a historian and writer that, that called the church to pure living time and again, he died in 41. And Daniel Kaufman, who was somewhat the driver of the steering wheel of the whole thing, he uh, he died in forty four. So very quickly, we had very very influential leaders dying and being replaced with people that uh, perhaps didn't have the um, vision that these the, these men did. The new leadership also in the fifties and sixties had been educated in the likes of Goshen College and so on, and. While I don't want to paint those institutions as all bad. I am absolutely convinced there was people that went through those institutions and and it did them good. I don't want to paint them as all bad. I want to say that right now. But that influence, as these people became leaders and, and uh, so on in the church, they brought those ideas with them and, and promoted them. Um, In society, there was an overall rebellion to authority. You you know that. 50s and 60s and 70s are known for that. Just, you are not going to tell me what to do. And that that spilled over into the church. You aren't going to tell me what to do. Number three. The imperative of biblical principles finding clear expression in daily life especially in very practical, mundane areas, seem to lose appeal. And we could speculate um, over, and we could turn that thing over, and try to figure out why that was, but that's the way it was. Many people think that perhaps there was a disconnect between the work of the cross, or initial salvation, and bearing the cross, cross cross-bearing. There was perhaps a disconnect. Uh, people did not understand that to be saved is one thing, but to walk the way of the cross is just an extension of that salvation. They, they seemed to perhaps miss that. And they began to view Christianity and cross-bearing as perhaps something that was restraining and unnecessary or worthless tradition, perhaps. I think closely related to that, the conference structures and the size of the conferences at the time um, lent itself to a real disconnect between the leadership and the churchmen of the day. Um, and when that happens, uh, not very many good things come from that. Um, can two walk together unless they be agreed? Um, if they're not agreed, it's pretty tough to walk together. And then, and then lastly... And, and I, this is maybe a repeat, but there was just the American individualism. You know, when you're persecuted and you might, you might one day disappear and you leave a wife and family, you need your brotherhood to take care of that wife and family. If you're on the frontier and you need to build a barn or, or a house or, I mean, you know, whatever, there's just so many things there that you need brotherhood for. It is a vital part of, of just existence. And so brotherhood was much more tight in the old days and it became much more take it or leave it in the 1900s because after all, I have my money, I have my house, I have this, I have that. I don't necessarily need you for my day-to-day living. And American individualism in in general just kind of of had its way. And um, brotherhood and submission to a body became less and less... um, uh, important and something that um, inspired people. Well, the, the combination of this led to a church that really was fast becoming something other than a church that honored God. Um, in a period of about 15 to 20 years, many Mennonite churches and conferences began to move from just what they considered shrugging off con- constraining Mennonite tradition to much more disturbing problems such as um, in embracing television, divorce and remarriage, very modest clothing, and on and on and on. It it just seemed like there was a, there was just, it, it was like an unstoppable train. One person during that era put it like this. He said, the Mennonite church is caught up in the cultural changes of larger society. The world as traditionally referred to is no longer them, but it is us. Our people lack a sense of history and heritage, and they want the changes they want. They want them now, not tomorrow, and regardless. I'll just say this, that's a very, very dangerous attitude, and it proves that nobody was thinking. That's what it proves. In simple language, the conservative Mennonite movement, as we call it, it started in the 60s and 70s, and even into the 80s. where a group of people that were interested in conserving simple Bible truths that were rapidly being abandoned under the Mennonite Church. Okay, let me back up. The, the, the simple Bible truths that were embraced in the early part of the 20th century were quickly being abandoned, and the conservative movement said, we have to do something about this. We're not ready to just relinquish all of this. And so there was, there was this uh, pulling out and uh, regrouping and starting of, of what we know of as the conservative Mennonite churches. I'm going to wrap it up with this. If you want to, you can turn to uh, John 4. going to, uh, to read two verses here, and I know it's out of context, but I think I can take it out of its context and apply it where I want to apply it and not do injustice to the scripture. Verses 36 and 30, I'm sorry, verses 37 and 38 of John 4 read like this. And herein is that saying true. One soweth and another reapeth. I sent you to reap that whereon ye bestowed no labor. Other men labored, and ye have entered into their labors. I would just like to say this. um, The next time I'm going to wrap this up, and and I'm going to uh, tell you, or give you some thoughts, give you some questions, for you to ponder about where we're going in the next 50 years as a brotherhood, as a church group. But I, I, I read these verses to say, you know, those men that started the conservative Mennonite movement back... When 50 years, 40 years ago, whatever. Those were were men of vision, and they were men that, that really sacrificed to give us what we have today. We are recipients of their labors. Are we willing to enter into their labors and make sure that it doesn't lie at our doorstep that godliness stopped in our generation? I think that's a very, very important thing for us to think about.